during kind of recessions, men would stop buying new underwear because no one would really see it because people cut back on essentials. Economics can feel distant and complex, some sort of dark art, but the decisions that economists make affect all of our lives. We know inflation hits people lower down the income spectrum much, much harder. Today, we've invited over for a chat a couple of Bank of England economists and co-authors of the book, Can't We Just Print More Money? Rupal Patel and Jack Meaning. Now, we recorded this episode in early April and some of the figures may have changed since then, but the principles are the same. And most importantly, I asked them the questions that you submitted to me about how their actions impact us all. And would you say you're good with money? I, I want I want your opinion on that as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty good at spending it at times. Yeah. <laughs> Stimulate uh, the economy. Like, <laughs> keep it going. I was thinking about how to start this episode and I was kind of thinking about what the Bank of England is. And I kept thinking this this old building in the middle of London where four or 5,000 people work and seven feet below their feet is like 400,000 bricks of gold. It's quite an abstract place. <laughs> <laughs> what I hope to do today, in your book, you say that an economy is just a collection of decisions. I would like to see how your decisions impact the economy. So rather than the macro, the all these individuals, bring it down to just you two. Can you start by telling us what is the function of the Bank of England and what it does? Yeah. So the Bank of England is a central bank uh, in the UK and it basically serves as a bank for other banks. So it works just like your kind of retail bank, Barclays or NatWest. But the Bank of England is a bank for those banks. And so they provide loans to them um, and they provide kind of um, customer services as well. Uh, but they also do a bit more specialist things. So the Bank of England sets interest rates in the UK. Um, it's in charge of making sure that all the banks are safe and so they can keep your money safe. Um, and so you can use it and get to it anytime you like. Um, and it also does kind of more specialist things such as keeping all the gold, as you mentioned um, as well, mainly for rich individuals, but other central banks as well. Have you ever seen the gold? Jack and I actually got to go down to the gold vaults just last year. Um, yeah, not many people get allowed in, even if they work at the bank, it's like a really kind of lockdown bit of the it? bank. So like we've been like the governors and stuff going, they had Idris Elba in a little while ago as well. So he gets Very influential economist, Idris yeah, Elba. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think a good question is, can you just explain why you wanted to be economists? Yeah, so um, I started studying economics at A-level um, just as the financial crisis was hitting. Actually, I think my first week of kind of economics at A-level was when Neiman Brothers collapsed. Um, and, um, it, you know, I had no idea what Lehman Brothers was, had no idea what really investment bank was. And all I remember seeing on the news was these kind of like upset bankers carrying out with their businesses with their yeah. cover boxes looking quite sad. Um, and I, re you know, I remember like Woolworths closing down all these high street shops, like, you know, family, friends who were losing their jobs. Um, and economics really helped me understand kind of why it was happening, um, and the kind of consequences of sort of decisions that were made at the time by the government and um, by Bank of England, actually. And so then I went on to study at university and then really, you know, wanted to kind of help uh, make sure that it didn't happen again. And so I applied for a job at the Bank of England on their graduate scheme. Um, and here I am nearly 10 years later. So like a similar thing is I, I grew up on this little island off of the North Kent coast where it's got like three prisons and one secondary school. And the big, the big employers were like a steel mill and a docks. And I remember like growing up and, you know, steel production kind of was having a tricky time and the docks were kind of going down. And so I had a, a number of my friends whose parents were unemployed or, you know, the kind of the local community was kind of getting affected by the, the kind of the the trials and tribulations of these big kind of factories. And no one in that kind of community really ever spoke about economics. Like no one had the language to kind of talk about it, but they were all talking about, or oh, so-and-so can't get a job or why has this many people been laid off? And then I went to university and I did economics and Spanish. And I'd basically done Spanish because I wanted to travel the world and economics because I thought I should probably have a backup to earn some money to pay for it. And, but I really wanted to just travel. And when I got to uni, I started seeing even like from my first lectures being like, well, that helps me understand what's going on there. Yeah. And I went back and I talked to my friends back there and was like, well, look, this is why this is happening. This is, this is what's going on. And yeah. So then I started kind of picking at that thread and realizing, well, not only can I kind of understand it, if I get into policy, I can start to affect it. 
I can, you know, I can try and influence policy so that fewer people are out of work or that people are getting skills to be able to do the jobs for the future, not the jobs of the past and those kind of things. So I then stuck around. I did like, you know, far too long at university doing like a master's and a PhD and then got into this policy world of, of trying to use economics to kind of make the whole place a bit better. Did you ever go traveling? Uh, I did. I, I did. I went to Spain, um, lived out there for like a while, um, which is amazing as well because you just see a different way of looking at things like economics yeah. and stuff if you kind of go abroad and do it. So one thing that you do really well in your book is you you bring you know economics back to the real world in relatable examples. You mentioned Woolworths and the pick a mix, and you talk about that as like a little micro economy. You give the example of Freddo's, which for people who don't know were those little chocolate bars shaped like frogs. They used to have Taz's as well, which were the caramel version, which were 100% better. <laughs> but they got rid of those. Can, you, can you just give us a, like a quick once over of your definition of inflation using Freddo's? Yeah, so when we, you know, when Jack and I were younger, and I'm sure both of you, uh, they were about 10p. Yeah. Now they're about 30p, which is, um, and maybe more um, from the last time I checked. And so uh, they're a lot more expensive. And generally, the price of things go up in the economy anyway. Um, and that's for a few reasons. So for Freddo's, for example, it might be more expensive for the kind of people who are producing Freddo's, which I think is Cadbury's, um, to make them because the price of cocoa beans might have gone up because it's more expensive to farm um, or you know they have to pay their farmers a bit more and so that kind of increases the cost of making the chocolate itself um, but also maybe the demand for Freddo's might have gone up over time if more people wanting them the shopkeeper who's selling the chocolate can charge a bit more money and kind of both those sides the supply and the demand side means that you know prices of it have to go up chocolate's an interesting example as well because we see that shrink shrinkflation don't we where they you know the mars bars got smaller over time which is another form well, of like inflation your packet of crisps get more and more empty over time like yeah. more because yeah. it used to be full now it's just like half a bag of it it's just a pack of crisps crisp now right? yeah, yeah. 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 Crisp. yeah. Well, they're selling like one chips aren't they like the spicy one chip challenge <laughs> yeah. yeah but like i mean so yeah and like that kind of thing like shrinkflation is like is about and it kind of hammers home this point about is what your money can buy you like it's not just about the price and stuff. Yeah. So on the Freddo's one, if you think about when we were at school, you know, you go out with 50p, you could buy five Freddo's, right? So 50p was worth five Freddo's in real economy kind of speak. Whereas now if you go out with 50p, you can buy one Freddo and have a bit of change left over, but you definitely can't even get two. So, you know, same amount of money has now become worth less because of, 15 years and then that factors in people's like expectations of what they should be paid and you exactly. know that pressure on that side where they're like well I still need my five Freddos so you're gonna have to pay me X amount for an hour or whatever now yeah and like economics should tell us we should be trying to actually improve people's kind of quality of life in the sense that you know like we talk in the book a bit about how we're richer than on average than our great great grandparents right and it's because over time we go from being able to afford one Freddo to two Freddos to yeah. three to four to five so it's actually, you know, that is the normal process of, of kind of economic development is we, we actually end up not just keeping the same, we should be improving and kind of and getting better. Yeah, like if you look at standards of living from the 50s to now, people, it's almost like we've won the lottery compared to people back then. And if you go back to the 1500s, you know, you live in a palace, but it didn't even have a toilet that worked. You <laughs> yeah. know, so like standards of living, they might have dipped recently, I think probably for the first time in a while, but over a long enough timeline, they've always risen. And obviously I think now more than ever, what you do has a, a light shone on it due to inflation. And you obviously mentioned about interest rates. Could you talk us through how your relationship with inflation and how you look to impact that? So I guess um, like one of the big things we're tasked with is trying to make sure that prices stay stable. So yeah. we're there to kind of protect the value of money in the economy. And that is basically kind of seen through inflation. So we're given the job by government to basically try and keep inflation at around 2%. Um, and we can kind of have a few tools in our arsenal to, to do that. So one of them is by moving interest rates. So if we think inflation is running too high or is going to go too high, then we put up interest rates a bit like everyone's kind of seeing now, right? Like interest rates have gone up over the last year. Um, and that's because inflation is going higher than we want it to be. And we have to bring it down a bit. Um, and if it's too low, then we lower interest rates and that hopefully kind of creates a bit more inflation. Um, the other thing we can do is print money or destroy money, which is kind of what we call QE or QT, quantitative tightening. And so those are basically the two tools that we have 
in kind of our, our toolkit to try and then affect um, what happens to, to inflation in the economy. Could talk a bit if you want about how that then feeds through. Before we get into the, the tools, or I think it's useful because there's all types of listeners to this. Can you just really define how you see inflation? Like what is it and how you measure it and how you come to that decision on those measurements essentially? Yeah, so inflation is basically, the way I always think about it is, imagine if you went around the supermarket and you kind of did a shop yep. and you totted up the kind of the, all the things that you bought, the price of them. So your receipt at the end, you kind of have an overall price. And that's what you call your basket of goods. So that's basically what the average person spends their money on. Then you go back in a year's time and you go and you buy the same things from the shop and you top up all the things on a receipt and you have a new number of what that cost you. And the difference, the kind of increase or decrease in those numbers is inflation. Now, some things in that shopping list might have become way more expensive. Some things may have even become cheaper. So when we talk about inflation, it's not just, oh, the price of this thing's gone up or that thing. It's on average, all the things in that shopping list are now more expensive. And that's basically, I mean, that feels like quite a simplified way of thinking about it, but that is exactly what the ONS do. They go out and they talk to people in shops. And but they, do they, they treat everything equally? You know, are they, obviously if a box of eggs, carton of orange juice, a car, like are they weighting these the same in terms of the no, measurement? So that they weight them in the amount that people kind of spend on them, right? So if you spend 10% of your, your money in, on average, the average person spends 10% of their money on food shopping, then things in the food shopping part of that basket get 10% weighting. So if it's something that you don't, that people in general don't spend very much money on, then that gets a really small weight in and it won't affect the number too much. But if it's something like food, where it's quite a big proportion, then that will get a bigger weight in and, and therefore it'll affect the overall number a bit more. What about things that some people like alcohol, cigarettes, some people do and other people don't? How do, how do you work your waiting for that? So obviously everyone might need milk, but not everyone needs cigarettes or fine wine or something. Yeah. So how does it work out? It's based on um, the average household. So it might include cigarettes and alcohol, but these things change over time. So over COVID, for example, they included face masks in the basket of goods um, and things pop, you know, go in and out of these baskets over time. And obviously different countries have different things in their baskets of goods when they're measuring inflation too. So, you know, I, I worked in sales and we would have like targets and we would try and hit the targets. We would also massage the, massage the numbers to make it look like we were hitting the targets. <laughs> if an organization has a target of say, our mandate is 2%, would it not be unreasonable to suggest that maybe you have, um, you have an incentive to make it look like you're near that 2%? How do, do you fudge the numbers? Inflation feels worse for people on the street. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Why do people feel that it's worse than what you're saying it is? So inflation right now is 10.4%. So it's mm. a lot above the 2% target. Yeah. And that's for kind of the average across the UK, but that's not true for any individual yeah. and across regions as well. So it might be more expensive in certain parts of the country than other parts or for certain households, depending on what you spend your money on. So we know, uh, for example, lower income households spend more money on um, energy and food or than higher income households. So the inflation rate for those on the lower end of the income scale might be worse than those for the higher, higher income households. Okay, yeah, because I think I saw like, you know, food inflation is 16%. And obviously I think people look at petrol and food and, uh, and energy and that's probably all they consider. Whereas there might be some abstract things that are dragging down the overall average that people don't buy that often. Secondhand cars might be falling in price or something. Yeah, all right. and on, so on the number fudge, you know, like a really important bit of this is like, we don't set our own homework and we don't then get to mark our own homework. So like you talk about sales and it's like, okay, the same person is like, kind of sorting out what the numbers are yeah. as the person that's kind of making the numbers and doing the sales, right? But for us, like the numbers are done by the Office for National Statistics, completely separate to us. The the kind of the task, the job we're like, given is given to us by government, which is again, not us. So like between those things, we kind of have these like they're institutional safeguards. They're like basically trying to separate out. So we can't go, oh yeah, we just really conveniently changed the measure of this, right? Someone else is checking that. Someone else is giving us the job and then we kind of fall in between those two things. So yeah, right, RuPaul's completely right. Like it will feel different to different people and that's massively important. But in terms of like the job we're given, like we're given a job, we do it and someone else tells us if we've done it or not. Yeah, I think people are always going to be distrusting, aren't they? When they hear like they hear 10% and they feel 16, they're thinking, you know, mm -hmm. 
anecdotally, I'm not feeling that, but it makes sense that certain aspects and unfortunately it's always the people at the lower end that, that probably feel it more. Okay, so what right now is, is causing the inflation, would you say? So at the moment, I think it's still largely energy costs. So mm. energy prices went up quite a lot after the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and they're still coming down, but not further enough to make sure that inflation is back on target. So that's still the largest bit. And you've mentioned before as well, food prices. Food prices have also gone up quite a lot, largely because of the energy costs, but also because commodities are more expensive. Um, and that obviously feeds through into... Um, directly into kind of what you say households are feeling in terms of inflation. Yeah. So one, th one thing that we've seen at the minute as well is, you know, wage based spirals in terms of the public sector and, and stuff. Do you think that raising the wages within the public sector would lead to more inflation? So in theory, the whole, why people talk about wages and inflation yeah. is because they, you can go into a spiral where yeah. because inflation's high, people ask for uh, wage rises, which then leads to employers feeding through those costs onto yeah. customers, which then leads to more inflation. Um, we're seeing an increase in wages across kind of different sectors, but it's difficult to say whether it's a wage price spiral at the moment. And then on the flip okay. side, do you think that if you were taxing like corporations like Starbucks or wealthy individuals, would that be good for the economy or bad for the economy? I mean, so like- Taxing them more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like <laughs> good, good or bad is probably something that like we kind of try and step away from, right? In terms of um, like, you know, trying to stick very closely to that kind of narrow job that we do. But in terms of like the situation, there is this decision that's got to be made and it's got to be made by kind of policymakers and, and kind of people that do have their hands on those decisions is like because of the fact that energy prices have gone up and we buy a lot of our energy from abroad and we buy things that use energy from abroad, the UK economy is worse off because of these energy shocks and these food price shocks. And there is a question around who feels that pain, right? Is that pain hitting people that are working through their wages? So their wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Is it hitting people who own companies and run businesses by the fact that their profits have to take a hit? Or is it some combination of the two? And that is like one of the biggest questions in kind of economics and economic policy, particularly for the UK at the moment, right? Is how much of it do you kind of let through, come through wages and how much you kind of let it come through um, kind of companies' profits? For us, like our job is basically to kind of set a really nice backdrop for somebody else to kind of make that decision, right? Because we're not, we're not elected like democratically, right? It's not really on the Bank of England to make those kind yeah, of decisions, yeah. right? But policymakers and kind of businesses and people working have to kind of come together, have that discussion and, and kind of then they'll come to a, a kind of a place on that. Do you find that economists disagree? Because obviously yeah. there's, there's, it's like schools of thought, isn't it? There's people that are hard numbers that are people more like behavioral economics, there's places in the middle. Do you find as an organization that you're sitting there having those conversations where it's like, we think we should be this direction, tax the rich. We think we should be more towards, you know, in terms of the, the advice that we're giving or passing over to policymakers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, RuPaul and I disagree on loads of bits like yeah. when we work on stuff, right? Like you, there's this thing about like you get two economists in a room, you get three opinions. Right? Yeah. It's just, you, you can't get like, and it's good that we don't get agreement on stuff, right? Because by someone coming in with a different way of thinking about it, that makes me really test what I think about yeah. it and we get to a better place. So yeah, there are, even in the bank, which is like this really old traditional establishment kind of place, there's loads of people with different views from different places and that makes it a better, better discussion. I think it is important though, like you say, that you essentially, you've created this backdrop and you have these tools that you can use to influence certain parts of the economy. You mentioned them before as interest rates and QE or QT, so making or destroying money essentially. Do you, they're quite blunt tools, aren't they? When we consider the fact that you're saying inflation is led by energy prices internationally. So how are these domestic based tools helping with international factors? So you're right, interest rates in particular are quite a blunt tool because it really just influences the demand side of the economy. So when there are demand side shocks, which cause inflation, it can be very effective. But these ones, as you say, are supply led. So it can be a bit more difficult, but they are kind of the 
the only tools we have to control inflation. And so bringing down sort of the demand part of inflation can help bring it down and kind of the rest of it. In energy prices, you'd kind of have to wait for them to fall. Do you wish you had more tools? Like direct, is there anything that you could say, this is a, you know, these tools exist that we could use or there's these theories within economics that we've seen elsewhere. Is there anything else that's on the sidelines? I mean, we're always looking to say like specifically the team that I work in, in the Bank of England is tasked with trying to think up new tools and test new things. And so we're always thinking about what's out there. And there are things in other parts of the world that are kind of, you know, people have done slightly different things. Japan is always quite kind of far along that kind of track of interest in thinking. But one of the things we've got is that we are tasked, like I said, from like government with doing this, this thing and kind of the tools we have are, are kind of you know, what are given to us. Um, so yeah, like we, we kind of, we stay within our lane basically. Yeah. Right. And do the best we can. And then other people will kind of pick up other bits of that. Cause I saw obviously when with the bond market issues after the, the mini budget or the, you seem to have quite a targeted approach there with how you went after certain bonds to basically prop up pensions, it, it would appear. So that seemed to me to be slightly more surgical in its approach. The, yeah, would you would that be an example? So that would that was more for financial stability. Yeah. So the bank has these like the two arms or yeah. more than that now, but like two big arms of monetary policy, which is prices and inflation, yeah. where we have these blunt tools, and then financial stability, where sometimes we need to be a bit more targeted. And that is about the fact that if you don't kind of intervene in that market in like a smaller way, then you might need to intervene or someone might need to intervene on a bigger scale yeah. because you get these big financial crises. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. That is a definite example of, you know, colleagues of ours at the bank. Well, actually RuPaul as well, like kind of working long and hard to be like, how can we design something new and something that's going to do the job? So do you feel like the Bank of England is quite forward thinking, like uh, innovative, or do you think it's more traditional or still a bit of a mix of both? We are facts we should have you. We sent out a smoke signal to get you It's the pigeons. Have you not yeah. <laughs> Um, as Jack said, we're kind of looking into new tools all the time. As you know, the economy changes over time, yeah. and so Bank of England needs to keep up with that um, and make sure that we have the right tools in place. I want to. I want to think about like someone who's watching this from my audience perspective, and with the blunt tools and the use of raising interest rates to fight inflation. And what they'll probably say is, "I feel skint. I have no money, and you're making it more expensive in terms of my mortgage costs and borrowing." How how does that help? You know. So um, the downsides of, you know, raising interest rates to control inflation is it does make it more expensive to borrow money. Um, and that is mechanical um, and the way to kind of control inflation in most circumstances. But the thing with inflation is if it gets really out of control, it can have very long term impacts on an economy, which is far worse than kind of short term pain of increasing the cost of mortgages, um, for example. Um, and we see it in other countries, you know, hyperinflation in Germany or Zimbabwe. Way, um, where people were literally having to pay for like a loaf of bread using a wheelbarrow. Germany cash. was the same, wasn't it? Yeah. After mm -hmm. the war, yeah. Um, and we're nowhere near that, but you know, we know how bad inflation can be for kind of individuals and whole economies, and we don't want to get there. Where, like, it would seem that everyone feels like they have less money, but the inflation numbers aren't coming down as quick. Who's got all the money? Who's spending? <laughs> who's <laughs> who's spending it? All do you think? Are you seeing that as in increased spending, increased? demand so, no so consumer confidence is nearly at a record low like retail sales yeah. are low and they have been since covid they haven't recovered back in the uk so you know you do see in the data the kind of cost of living crisis coming through now as well so we are we are seeing that people have less money but we're still jacking it up because that's all we can do essentially yeah. Yeah. And like, so the thing you kind of have to, to kind of think about is like, it's not always just like the amount of money you've got, right? The really important thing that like people should try and, you know, if you understand one lesson about kind of like basic economics, it's that the amount on like the price ticket is not it. It's how much you can buy with that money, right? Yeah. And so, you know, if, if I give you a hundred pounds and inflation's 2%, then you've just lost essentially yeah. kind of two pounds out of that. But if inflation's 20% and you've lost a whole lot more and you can buy a lot less. Yeah. And so that's like a really kind of key thing to kind of take out of this is, you know, even if it looks like, you know, you're getting a 3% pay increase or something, you go, oh, I've actually got some more money in terms of what you can buy with that at the moment. That's, that's going down. That's where we see this kind of 
consumer spending kind of cost of living stuff biting for people is yeah. on paper they look like they've got a bit more money even those people that like you know it might only be one two percent or something like that but actually what they can get you're like saying like weekly shopping is costing more than it did before yeah, yeah. and it's costing yeah. more than your pay increase yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so yeah, yeah and so you know I think with politics, they often frame it as we'll bring inflation down to help with the cost of living when in reality, all they're actually doing is slowing the growth of prices. Like the prices tend to be quite sticky, don't they? And they, I think, you know, once things go up in price, they don't often come back down. So is your aim really to slow the rate of inflation to allow people's wages to catch up over a period of time? Because so, so that's a really interesting bit, right? Is that people often think, and there's loads of actual kind of academic studies on this that show that people think that when inflation comes down, that actually means the price of things has yeah. come down. But inflation is about the growth. The growth right? rate. So, and it's compounding on the years before. It, exactly. Yeah. So you very rarely through history, like or at least modern history, see periods where prices go down. Deflation. Deflation, yeah. right? But our job is not to kind of bring inflation down so people's wages can catch up. It's to say, over the medium term, inflation will be kind of low and steady and will kind of tick along. And then hopefully if everyone kind of buys into that, then wages might kind of catch up because people will say, I don't want to be getting a real pay cut for like the next 10 years. I want my wages to be going up. And businesses will be doing better because there's this stable background for them to do better on. So they'll be able to afford to give pay rises. So yeah, yeah like it's... You know, it's it's kind of an important dynamic. Yeah, because it just feels like the, the the narrative out of politicians in the news can often be, we'll bring it down and then everything will be cheaper. But it's it's not like that. It's kind of slightly misleading, isn't it? The costs are still going up. There's when I was reading your book, I loved the book by the way. Like I really liked how you broke down. I've got a copy in my bag just there. You use a quote in there that I thought was brilliant from John Maynard Keynes, where you basically, I think it's called the Master Economist, and it's his. It's almost like a poem. It's quite like nice how he's written it, but no part of a man's nature or, or his institutions must be entirely outside of his regard. He's basically saying that economists need to consider every aspect of a person when they make their decisions. One thing I'm interested in is, do you consider the impact on people when you make your decisions? You know, or do you, do you just sit on your gold, drink your champagne, <laughs> <laughs> raise it up a little yeah. bit here? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Do you think when we raise interest rates, X amount of people are going to lose their home or this could be the impact on an individual level or is it simply we need to do this and there's going to be pain? So, of course, um, the Bank of England does consider these things. So it does think about what the, you know, how many people's mortgages will go up um, and kind of how much extra it will cost them per month to pay for those, um, for that increase as well. But essentially, its target and its main kind of objective is to bring inflation down because ultimately that's the thing that will benefit kind of everyone. Um in some sense, but you know, it does consider these things. I think the base rate is it four point two five percent at the minute. Yes. How, can you just run us through how you make that decision to to get to that place? Like, so um, the ultimate policy decision is made made by the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, which is made up by the governors of the Bank of England and a few external, largely kind of academics and economists. Um, they all get a vote each. And then the majority kind of the vote, vote um, sorry, the majority then kind of win. Sorry, it's not win. Shouldn't say win. <laughs> um, and then kind of um, the majority kind of get the consensus of what the interest rate should be. Now, a lot of work goes on behind kind of the scenes before that vote. So staff um, kind of pull together lots of bits of data in the economy through loads of different things. So they'll look at kind of what inflation is doing at the moment, what's driving it, and look at other indicators um, of the economy too. So they'll think about wages, how fast they're going up. Are they keeping up with... Um, inflation or not. They'll think about um, the unemployment rates as well as the employment rates um, as well. And they'll also look at other indicators. So things such as like second hand car sales are kind of a good indication of how well the economy is doing or not. Um, and then the committee will kind of sit together, trawl through all the data, have a long discussion um, about what they think it means for inflation in the future, as well as growth, and then make their decision based on that. So you spoke about second hand cars there. Can you just explain why they're a good indicator? for the health of the economy? 
Yeah, it's mainly about confidence. So if you're confident in the economy and you think it's going to grow, you'll kind of switch into kind of newer cars, but normally secondhand. So you'll kind of trade your old one in for a better secondhand car. Um, and what's funny is that sometimes you might see sales of secondhand cars going up while kind of new cars remain flat or go down. And particularly we saw this during COVID. Yeah. So there was a shortage of kind of new cars being made. And so lots of people had to rely on just using secondhand cars. And so the kind of price of them skyrocketed. You could sell them for more than you bought them, couldn't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. That, yeah. Um, and so it's really interesting, but there are kind of um, other kind of more quirky indicators. So one that we talk about in the book which is um, a favorite of Alan Greenspan, who used to be the head of the US Central Bank, the Fed, is um, sales of men's underwear. So he found that during kind of recessions, men would stop buying new underwear because no one would really see it because people cut back on essentials. And so you'd actually see sales fall. Um, and during kind of good times, they'd kind of um, kind of recover again. Stop going commando. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to whip out the pants, boy. Can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my YouTube channel? It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers and side hustlers with their websites. My favourite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website just like magic. You can then customize it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO friendly text, and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user friendly, and of course, what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code making money, that's making money all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. You know, if you watch the American kind of the same version with the mm-hmm. Fed, they're very much like, we are raising these rates, you know, like prepare for pain, like strap yourselves in. And then the UK message seems slightly different at times. Um, hawkish and dovish, they, they call them, don't they, in terms of their approach. I was wondering, is it, you know, are they thinking about sentiment? Are they thinking about people and how they're going to react when they're making these decisions? The Americans seem a lot more like direct. Yeah, so I think that comparison with the US mm-hmm. is important, but it is a slight it's just like kind of a misleading one yeah. because the reason they're coming in a different place is not necessarily because of sentiment or because they're hard nosed and we're kind and cuddly. <laughs> it's that the kind of the economic picture is a bit different. But like Rupa and I have both been in the room with these policymakers when they're making these decisions. And like I can tell you firsthand, like not one of them kind of has their eyes closed to the fact that the decision they're making is going to affect the ability of people to kind of afford to put their electricity like, on to like keep their houses warm, to buy food for their kids. Like all of them have that in their minds. I think the trick and kind of the bit where you kind of step back a bit from the sentimentality of it is that you have to know that, or you have to trust in the fact that the kind of the medium and longer term consequences of not doing that action are worse. Yeah. And will, you know, although it might not be as intuitive, um, it is worse for those people. Like we know inflation hits people lower down the income spectrum much, much harder. We know that people that don't have lots of assets are the ones that are worst hit by kind of when inflation goes up too high. And so, although you're kind of, you know, you're making a decision which is tough when you put it in the context of, you know, people not being able to put their lights on or being able to kind of afford kind of nutritious meals or something, you kind of have to say, all right, but what's the alternative? And, you know, I think they kind of, they use sentimentality in that, right? It's you kind of, you have a bit of a science and, you know, you use that Keynes kind of yeah. quote, right? You have like a bit of the science that he talked about, which is, okay, like we know this is kind of the best thing. And you mix that with a bit of the humanity, which is okay. And it's the best thing because over the longer term, it's going to be best for more people. Yeah. Okay. You spoke about policymakers there and, Obviously, we'd, it's interesting to talk about politicians and your kind of relationship with them and how they, when they come out and they say things, I think a lot of people wonder, have they actually spoken to anyone who kind of knows what they're on about here? Um, <laughs> if we look at like the, the mini budget, I know they refused the OBR report, didn't they? Or something at the time, I think. But do you think politicians understand what you do? 
I'm not sure if it's us to, uh, for us to comment on. Okay, so maybe a better way is, would they liaise with you in terms of like their policy and do they sit down with people like yourselves or the Bank of England and say, we want to do this and this is how we, and then you go, well, if you do that, we think this will happen. So we have a lot of communication with what is kind of working level people, right? So yeah. we have people that do the similar kind of job to us at the treasury and at all the different government departments. And they are like us, you know, they're like economists that understand the kind of how it works and they're there because they want to kind of serve public service and things. So we have a lot of conversations with them. But a really important part of the way the whole system works is they are free to make their decisions yeah, and we are free to make ours and we don't interfere with them because if we start interfering with them, they'll start interfering with us and we just need to keep that all separate. So we do talk and we do say, look, if, you know, if this policy comes in, then we might have to do this with interest rates, right? Like if, if something happens, like I think it was really obvious, like, um, kind of a few years back, people were talking about like fiscal spending, right? If, if the government's going to go out and spend a lot of money and if they do that, that will, you know, that will support the economy that will increase demand in the economy, but that will also have consequences for inflation and push inflation up. So the flip side of that is, okay, well then what is our natural decision? Well, we have to combat that. So we choose to put interest rates up a bit more. Yeah. And like everybody understands that dynamic, but we won't say to them, don't do that policy because we're going to put interest rates yeah. up. And they won't say to us, well, don't put interest rates up because we're doing this policy. Like it just doesn't work like that. It can seem frustrating at times, right? It feels like you're pulling away from each other where like government, especially maybe with the, the Quarten kind of mini budget felt like they were going one direction when the Bank of England were trying to go another. I mean, obviously this is as a layman just sat there. It just seemed that they were maybe, they were maybe pulling apart and people were like, do these guys talk to each other? Because I get what you say, being separate is good, but you would also hope that we were all part of the same team, you know, and that there was like sensible conversations around these things. But yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the clarification. You talked you talk then about a couple of years ago and stimulating the economy, COVID and, and these points. And when we spoke about inflation before, it was very much, you know, energy and stuff. Where how, how much do you think the quantitative easing like contributed towards inflation? And did you know at the time, look, if we stimulate the economy with furlough and all of this, we're going to get inflation? So quantitative easing is a policy tool to help increase inflationary pressure yeah. in the economy. So it's usually um, done when there's deep, when like the Bank of England thinks that there'll be deflationary pressure. So when prices are going to start falling. So the first time it was used was just after the financial crisis, when it was quite obvious the UK was entering a recession, people were going to spend less, something needed to kind of prop up the economy. Um, and similarly, after the COVID crisis as well, we were under lockdown, all the shops were closed. There was no, there was, you know, demand was basically being cut. Um, and that's when quantitative easing was announced. Um, and so that's kind of the reason you do quantitative easing. And when inflation started to increase, the Bank of England started quantitative tightening, which Jack said, which is basically taking money out of the economy and destroying it, um, which brings inflation down. Yeah. So the deflation point is, I think, is quite an interesting one because it's obviously... I think at one point we were forecasting a period of deflation. We now think we might avoid it, but it's often talked about as this really bad thing. Do economists think deflation is bad, especially when we consider that tech is deflationary? It removes people from the workforce. As we develop more and more tech, AI, robots and stuff, that is deflationary in its very core. So are we not heading that way anyway, in a sense? So deflation is just as bad as inflation, yeah. right? So because it can, it means that you would postpone your spending. Yeah. So take, for example, if you want to buy, I don't know, like a new pair of trainers, if you think that the price is going to fall tomorrow, you'll defer that spending till tomorrow. You would just wait. And yeah. you'll just wait and you'll keep waiting and you'll never spend that money. And if everyone does that, and that's bad for everyone because the shops aren't getting the business they need. Um, and so you want to avoid deflation. Now you say technology is deflationary. It can be in some sense, but again, like interest rates will help control inflation, make sure it's on target. Yeah. So a count could be that I'm still going to buy my food shop and the items that I might not buy might be a pair of Ray-Bans and maybe they need to come down in price or like luxury watches and stuff. Would Does deflationary affect every element of the economy? Would we start to see, you know, consumer essentials, are, are, they're essential, right? So Yeah. So, th I mean, this is where like the complexity of the economy really like kicks in, right? And also why it's important that inflation is like 
across the board. It's the average across the board rather than. So what we don't want to do is stop a signal of, okay, people don't want to buy as many Ray-Bans. They want to buy more food shops. The prices should balance out to tell people, produce fewer Ray-Bans, produce more, kind of more food, basically. So we want those kind of signals. They're called relative prices. Like we want those. What we don't want is kind of all of the prices coming down on average, kind of for any prolonged period of time. And the reason for that is because everything's connected. So the guy yeah. producing Ray-Bans is not just a guy producing Ray-Bans. He's a guy going and spending money in the supermarket. So if his Ray-Ban business goes under, he hasn't got money to spend. So he's not going to go spend it in Sainsbury's, which means then Sainsbury's profits are going to come down. So they're going to be in a worse place. The people working at Sainsbury's won't have as much money because Sainsbury's can't put their wages up. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to have less money to go spend around the economy and the whole thing kind of cycles a bit. So you have to kind of think about this thing a bit more in the round, like, you know, like deflation is bad because it might affect some people, but they're then the people that are spending in other bits of the economy. And so everything kind of then feeds through. The other thing about deflation is, um, so inflation erodes debt. Right. So yeah. say you've got a mortgage and the average cost of everything in the economy is, I don't know, uh, let's say 10 grand to give a right, nice round number. And you've got a 10 grand mortgage, then, you know, you, you're kind of one for one. And then all the prices go up and you're now on 20 grand. Well, that mortgage has just gone down by like half the value. Right. Whereas deflation does the opposite. It means that like what you're earning and, and kind of the, the price things in the economy are falling, but your debt what you owe is still the same. So it gets more and more expensive yeah. to pay your mortgage or your credit card. Or and your national debt. Or your national debt yeah. if you're a government. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, it is interesting because I think people like, they just want the prices to come down, but they don't maybe consider it. And they hear deflation is bad. And then it's like, it's kind of a bitter pill again, isn't it? To swallow like, how yeah. is the prices of things coming I down? Mean, deflation on uh, childcare products and nappies would not be bad for me right now. Yeah. <laughs> the amount I'm paying on nappies. So if we get some deflation on like just nappies. Baby wipes for birthdays. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, 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 once they're out of nappies, I trust you, it just changes. We were going through our bank statements and I've got like a 10 year old and my life is just like going spending money on jump heaven and like oh. bouncing like trampoline parks and things like, like this. And in the school, so this is the school holidays now, right? And yeah. like, it's oh, like a small fortune just oh, to stop ridiculous. them killing themselves and boredom. And you <laughs> can't work. So you get hit from both sides, don't you? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, thanks for that. So, Basically, a lot of the questions are from my audience. So I asked them what they wanted to ask. And there was a, there was a number of questions they got upvoted. Um, one was, do economists think that Brexit was good for the UK economy? Again, have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so economists uh, have different views, you know, as I said, get two economists in a room, get three opinions. Yeah. Um, and it's quite difficult to know what the kind of impacts of Brexit are because we're not that far along. Um, and we've had quite a few shocks in the economy. Yeah. So we had COVID at a very similar time. And so it's difficult to tell kind of um, what the, you know, how Brexit and COVID have kind of affected the economy. And so we'll have to kind of wait for longer term to really see the impacts coming through. Good answer. So the- Like a true economist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Step over. Sidestep. <laughs> I mean, if we compare us to the rest of the G7, it seems like we might we might be lagging slightly, you know, with the, I think we're, we're the only one that isn't, hasn't grown over the last few years. So, I mean, like you say, who knows, but what kind of timelines are we looking at then until we can definitively say, yeah, Brexit was good, Brexit was bad? I, I mean, like, it's tricky to ever think there is a time when we are going to be able to disentangle which bits are Brexit, which bits are COVID, which yeah. bits are the war in Ukraine, right? Because all of those things just get mashed together. I think, like, you know, at the bank, we kind of have these regular forecasts of the economy. And for, to build those, we need to have some kind of sense of what's going on. And in that, like, implicitly under the hood of that is some impact from Brexit as part of like a Brexit, COVID, Ukraine type thing kind of in together. So there is definitely an effect, but being able to kind of put numbers on it and stuff is, you know, yeah. that's a pretty, even in 10 years time, that might be a pretty impossible task. I think it's hard because people want to know, don't they? They want to know like we voted for this thing or we didn't. Has it been good? Has it not? And it's like, well, we don't really know. And it's, you know, yeah. okay. So 
I think we've focused looking backwards a lot. I want to now kind of look forwards because I think economists, people say you're often quite pessimistic or it's your job to be. Because <laughs> especially you, I think your job is to literally go, this, these are the potential shit storms that could, could hit us. <laughs> are you optimistic about the UK's like future, would you say? If you look at like the forecasts we put out, right? And they look at like the next kind of two to three years like in there we've got kind of like this bumpy period of kind of letting this inflation thing kind of work through like there's kind of a downturn in the economy as you kind of try and bring all that back into line but then after that the picture is you know kind of a bit more of a return to what seemingly normality although it's been so long since we've had a period of normality yeah. it's hard to know um and then you've got like you know over the longer term like trying to forecast and guess like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future is is a bit of a mugs game. But there's loads of stuff that's potentially kind of really quite exciting there, right? Um, like adjusting to a new digital world, um, like the kind of, you know, the potential for kind of um, reforms in like society as a whole because of all these technological advances, like you mentioned AI earlier and stuff, right? All of those things are quite exciting. Um, and could have really big economic consequences. So I, for me, I mean, maybe it's because I'm an economist and I find that kind of stuff interesting, right? But those are quite exciting things that could have really like important upsides to them. Um, and yeah, so I, I feel optimistic and positive, even though I'm supposed to be pessimistic and cynical. <laughs> I think I'm got, always optimistic. You've got to be. Right? Yeah, yeah, be yeah. Like, I mean, otherwise, why are you getting out of bed? Yeah, <laughs> as a long-term investor, I have to be optimistic, yeah. right? Otherwise, what's the point? Like, just yeah. blow my money now. Yeah. So... One, to, to mention digital. Yeah. While you're talking about digital, um, what do you think about crypto? Um, we hear a lot about CBDC, uh, central bank digital currency, like a digital pound. I work in crypto. Half my net worth is in crypto. Give me an answer, please. Give me a good answer. But yeah, what do you think about crypto going forward? Have you got any Bitcoin with that gold? That's... <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> strictly gold. But we, I mean, on that, like the gold is not ours, right? So <laughs> of the 400,000 bars of gold in the bank, only two of them belong to the Bank of England. Oh, and they're really? both in the museum. Just so anyway, two? Just two bars or 200,000? We sold off a lot of gold like a few years ago, right? So the government has like a load more gold in there. But they sold off loads. So there was a fair sell back in like the 2000s. But like specifically for the Bank of England, we're basically just looking after it for our rich friends yeah. as like, or like, you know, other governments, or other countries, other governments, governments and, yeah. and stuff. But like we have two and they're both in the museum. So like, you can go in and lift them up and play around with them or whatever. But so crypto, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was one of the most asked questions. Yeah. Like literally it was one of the most up lights. Everyone was saying, what do they think about crypto? Yeah. We, do, we don't give investment advice. So I guess there's a difference between like crypto assets and central bank digital currencies, yeah. right? So crypto assets are assets like anything else you can invest in, like shares or um, kind of bonds that you might buy, which go up and down in price depending on kind of demand or supply of them. Um, and they can be quite volatile, I'm sure. Everyone's oh, seen, you know, <laughs> price crashes or price increases all the time. Um, central bank digital currencies are a bit different. Mm. They're a bit like having an account with the Bank of England um, where you can deposit your money at the Bank of England and take it out a bit like you would with a retail bank, but without kind of that intermediation there. So at the moment, kind of with your retail bank is backed by the Bank of England. Yeah. So if anything goes wrong with them, the Bank of England will make sure that you get your money. But here you cut out that kind of bank and you kind of, you do all your banking with the Bank of England. And so you, you know- Would we get the favorable rate that banks get that are creaming at the minute? Because I mean, you know, you see like Barclays have probably got, every time the interest rates go up, they're making an extra fair few hundred million, aren't they on there? The money that they help they hold with the Bank of England essentially would yeah. would would direct consumers get that similar rates with a. This I mean, kind of so this is one of the really interesting design questions. So we have like a consultation paper at the moment asking people to kind of give their views and talking to people in the industry and stuff. But the question about whether we would pay interest and if we would pay interest, like what rate of interest we would pay, is is kind of still an open and live question. And people in different parts of the world are kind of coming out with different answers. But it's entirely possible. So I think like the kind of the default model we would have is more like a digital banknote. So it's more like, you know, you don't get interest on your five pound note. Um, and it would be more kind of that model. But what you're getting in return is kind of something that's completely safe and um, kind of you're able to use it across a wide range of things and it's got our guarantee on it and stuff. But there's nothing technologically to stop us 
having one where you paid interest just like you would get with Barclays or something. Um, and yeah, yeah, like I say, like that's kind of an open question that we're kind of investigating and we're asking for people's views on as well. Yeah, because I think, you know, people feel that the, the, the rates don't trickle down on the saving side. They just they, they just get applied on the, the borrowing side quite quickly, don't they? And, you know, you see it with banks paying 1% when they're probably getting 4% from, from yourselves or whatever. So coming back to the growth point before, we spoke about optimism in the future, but demographic trends are that we're having less kids in the UK. How, how does that fit into growth with us having less children? And then how do systems that rely on growth, such as pensions, are affected by that slowing growth rate? So, you know, the population is aging. So there's a large proportion who are older, which means there are fewer people in the labor force. So people yeah. that will work in the future compared to those that, you know, are working um, and you need labor, essentially it's one of the key ingredients for economic growth. Um, and so as that labor force kind of gets smaller, it can be a bit more difficult for the economy to grow. But one thing which you should take into account is technology, yeah. which means that you might need fewer replaces workers. The labor yeah, force. Refuses, yeah. Um, sorry, it replaces the labor force. It might even make it a bit more productive. And so it's quite difficult to tell kind of which way things can go. And obviously, even if you've got an aging population here in the UK, things like migration help because you can get younger workers who might move here um, and contribute to the labor force in that way. So, you, so you, you know, you see this trend happening, but you do think it's not going to be... Because it does seem that within so within the Western world, the, the growth hasn't been abundant in certain areas, especially in the UK. And it's like, we're reliant on growth to get us out of issues, you know, grow GDP and things, we hear this. But with a shrinking population, it's like, how will that happen? Yeah, I guess one of the important things that's kind of really like um, coming in more into economic thought, I guess two, maybe two important things. One is like people are actually kind of understanding a bit more bro broadly the importance of like, it's not GDP, it's not the amount in the economy, it's the amount per person. Yeah. It's kind of per capita thing, per right? Capita. So Rupert's right, like even kind of on a per capita basis, if you've got more people that are not working and fewer people that are, that can kind of create problems. But in general, like you say, if your population is shrinking, then you can still have people's standards of living that kind of per capita GDP going up as long as growth is, like the economy isn't shrinking quicker than kind of the number of people. So that's one thing. The other thing is like, there's this kind of acceptance among economists and it's been growing for decades, right? It's not new, but it's really kind of capturing people's imagination now about um, different ways of measuring the economy. So we don't just, you know, economists don't just talk about GDP. They talk about well-being indices or they talk about um, like the kind of circular economy type thing. And like, you know, all these different measures of, um, the like happiness the indexes like, yeah, and stuff. Yeah, I think it's like things, really good. Like, yeah. Yeah. All those kind of things. Yeah. Right. And so they're feeding into the conversation a bit more now. Yeah. I think like ultimately we all just want to be happy. Right. So mm. if that, that's, I would take being poor if I was happier. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were speaking before about basic economic lessons. You said, you know, it's this understanding of how much you can buy with your money, et cetera. Are there any other things that you think listeners should know that don't know anything about economics that could maybe get them started? Any basic rules or? I guess. Okay. Basic. Oh, about economics. Yeah, just about yeah, what you yeah. To un make, make, help them understand your world and the decisions that you make, like any like rules of thumb. And I, I, I remember yeah. Setebus Paribus from my economics <laughs> It's like, if everything stays the same, then this might happen. And that just seems silly to me because like yeah. we're in a world of chaos. And the, fact that, the fact that you have to learn it in Latin as well yeah. is absolutely yeah. ridiculous, yeah. right? Not only you learn in economics, you're having to learn a dead language yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah, we took out all the Latin from, uh, from the book. Many. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... For me, like the thing that always kind of seems to get leveled at economists is that like we have this like hard nosed kind of view of, of things like people are out to just make it, you know, their own self interest. They're there to kind of make as much money. And the thing I always try and like kind of get my friends to kind of get their heads around is there's nothing inherent in that kind of model of economics that means it's all about the money. The concept we have at the heart of it all, and we talk about in the book a bit is utility. So it's this idea of like the benefit you get and that can be money and money sometimes a good way of kind of proxying that and capturing that. But it could be, you quality know, of life. quality of life or the sense of like well-being you get from helping out in your local community or something. There might not be any money made there, but that might give you utility. And so like, 
this kind of model of, right, you've got to be completely rational and try and make as much money as you can. And that turns people against each other. Like that doesn't have to be a part of the model. Like the model can be what we kind of, as humans kind of make it. And therefore, you know, this concept of utility is a really important one to get your head around. Is it money or do you value other things? Do you value your time and your quality of life and your friendships and your community and all of those kind of things that can all sit within this economic model? So you don't have to throw the model out just because you think that's yeah. the kind of thing. In the book, on. you talk about someone taking a pay cut and how that from a pure economics perspective, that might not make sense like financially, but actually from a utility perspective, they might have a short commute. They might like enjoy the job more and the work more. So would you say that over time, your job is to find what the important measures are then in that sense? Like you talked about happiness before and, and, and these you, kind of things. Are you seeing, joining on that, are you seeing a lot from people working at home? Does that make, does that, is that making a difference as well in the economy? Because I work from home and I find my life a lot happier not having to go to Liverpool <laughs> Street on the tube every day. I would take a pay cut to work from home. I was, so I'm, not going to to home. Home. I'm not yeah, going yeah, back to full time yeah. in the yeah. office ever yeah. again. Yeah. 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 And there's loads of people making that same decision, right? And there's some really interesting, Stanford University has got some really interesting studies on this where they're, they're basically trying to find out how much of a pay cut people would be willing to take. But it just goes to show that people aren't there weighing up just the money they're kind of they're doing quality of life quality yeah. of life is yeah. massive yeah and like you should remember that economic growth isn't really about how much money an economy has it, it's really about the quality of life and one way economists measure it because it's just quite an easy way is gdp per capita which is how much you know each person essentially should get from an economy but um really it's all about the quality of life yeah, because when I was when I was working my full time job um, in, for an, an accountancy firm and had my YouTube channel, I had two incomes coming in. I was earning more money than I ever have, but I was completely miserable. So I quit my full time job to focus on YouTube just to improve quality of life and essentially halve my income at that point. But like you say, it's it's the end result is happiness, isn't it? I think sometimes we have to kind of remind ourselves that day. But having said that, are you guys good with money? <laughs> are you good with investments and generally budgeting and money? I think my bank account will, um, will probably speak for itself. Um, it, I do, I'm not really sure. Like, you know, I think the good thing about being an economist is that you really understand what things like, you know, the interest rate decision really impacts your yourself and your kind of personal incomings and outgoings, um, which is really useful. So I know, for example, when the interest rate goes up, what it means for my loans. And then I can think about that in terms of how much I get in my salary. Um, and it's useful kind of to make sure that you know, everyone else knows what that means for them as well. Go on then. What, what would you say? Like, just so like someone listening going, if an interest rate rise goes up, if interest rates go up now, what does that mean for people? So it depends if you're a borrower or saver. So if you've got, you know, a mortgage or a loan, a student loan, for example, it means that you'll have to pay more out of your salary if it's not going up at the same rate. Um, towards it. But if you're a saver, it means that actually you're going to get more return on your savings, which actually means you have more money to spend. So it really depends. And a lot of people are both, right? You yeah. borrow and you save money. And so it kind of depends on the balance of the two. Yeah. And then investors, it's like, In they, they say <laughs> that it's interest rates are like gravity on asset prices or is, is what Warren Buffett said, I think. So you yeah. can be an investor and add that to the mix and there's a whole load of confusion then, isn't there? Can, <laughs> yeah, can yeah. you guys invest? So it depends in what, um, what the Bank of England, uh, so if you work at Bank of England, you're not allowed to invest in any kind of banks or insurance companies that uh, we supervise, which is actually quite a lot of, well, I think most of them in the UK. So financial institutions, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And most of them would need to be here because of the way the UK is regulated, right? They'd have UK entities. Yeah. So, so, you know, the UK has a large financial centre. Yeah. And so lots of financial companies are headquartered here or have some sort of presence in London, especially. Mm. Yeah. So economists understand incentives, right? And, and it's a really bad incentive if you're able to invest in stuff that then you also have like a say in trying to control like conflict, the shape. Yeah. So to take that conflict completely off the table, you know, bank staff are kind of, you're not allowed to invest for like speculative reasons. We can't do crypto. We can't do kind of things that we're regulating, all of those kind of things. And it just keeps it kind of cleaner than clean, right? Is, you know, you take that off 
um, off the table. And would you say you're good with money? I, I want I want your opinion on that as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty good at spending it at times. Yeah. <laughs> spend it on uh, stimulate the economy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've got three kids. So actually, I don't spend my own money. They will spend it for me. Yeah, 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 fair enough. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I get by, right? It's one of the benefits. Like you look at studies about if you've got basic economic or financial literacy and you end up, you know, doing better with money over Living the Living longer, of your life. you say in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's and it's all associated from the fact that, you know, over the course of your life, you're you're able to kind of navigate more. You end up financially better off. That's so you're healthier with, as a result, better yeah. healthcare, better food. Yeah, you spend less time worried about, it's tied into like mental health and well-being because you spend less time stressing about money. Um, and you know, stressing about money can be a really big hit to your health, right? So, they so say it's like smoking. Like yeah, if you're yeah. if you're chronically unhappy or stressed, that that can take as much off your time as being a, a an active smoker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone should read your book and uh, listen to the podcast, and then you'll yeah. live longer and be more wealthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, do the podcast first, and then come get the <laughs> There you go. <laughs> When we recorded this episode, the Bank of England base rate was 4.25%. It's now 4.5%, impacting mortgage holders and house hunters alike. So next week, we're debating when you should buy and when you should rent. If you want a bullet point summary of the episode, then subscribe to our newsletter in the description. But if you're new to the podcast, you need to listen to our first episode, which is all about your relationship with money. That's exactly where you should start. I'm Damien Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast with my great mate, Tamena Kerelay. The episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs. Video editing is done by Johnny Hunter with music by Felix Taylor. Our producer is Ruth Edwards and it's all brought together by Will Stolomon. 